me read um, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 46 to 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the word of our Lord. May he add his blessing to its reading, and to our understanding. Let's sit down together and let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you that you are great. Lord Jesus, you are the only great one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal triune God. There is no one on this planet who is great, and no one who has ever been on this planet who is great apart from you. Lord Jesus, we praise you that even as the disciples, Peter and John and James, for a moment saw your glory, Lord, your glory was veiled in human flesh, but Lord Jesus, your glory is eternal. Lord, this is the glory which you now have at this very moment. And Lord, even as Moses prayed, show us your glory. The Lord, as Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock so that he would not be consumed by your glory, but could only see the hind part of your glory. Lord, we pray that, that you would hide us in the cleft of the rock, that we would behold your glory, and that in beholding your glory, we would be humbled in your presence and humbled before each other and humbled before those who we would deem to be outsiders and even humbled before those who we would deem to be enemies. Lord, may our lives be patterned after through the work of your Spirit, the humility of Jesus Christ who condescended to take on human flesh and to dwell in the midst of a sinful creation and to humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see and to understand true glory and true humility and help us, Lord, to follow after you, seeking your glory with humble faith. Grant that to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter and John and James had seen the veil pulled back momentarily to see the glory of Christ. They had just heard the audible testimony of God the Father saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. 
And then from that exalted experience, Peter and John and James tumbled down the Mount of Transfiguration to failure. And as they met the rest of the disciples, they arrived to failure. The contrast between Christ and his followers is stark. The contrast between Christ and his followers is always stark. The disciples, remember, had, had just failed to, to cast out a demon out of, out of a poor boy because of their lack of faith. And their faithlessness led to unfaithfulness as they were unable to do what Jesus had previously given them instruction and authority to do. And their faithlessness continued as they failed to understand Jesus' clear description of what he came to do, that he would be handed over and killed and raised on the third day. They should have understood for many reasons, notably among which this was the second time in a matter of days that Jesus had told them what he was going to do. They clearly were not doing a very good job at listening to the Father's instruction, listen to him. In our passage this morning, the disciples are going to continue their descent. The disciples are not finished falling yet. They're going to fall again hard. And this passage serves as both an epilogue and as a prologue. It marks the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and the opening and the beginning of his road to Jerusalem, which we're going to see next week. And for the disciples, the road to Jerusalem will begin very much as their time in Galilee ends, with failure. You don't need a mountaintop experience to experience failure. Maybe you can testify to failure this past week. Times when you didn't do what you should have done or you did what you should not have done. Maybe you've come here this morning bruised and battered. Not because of what others have done to you, though that is a distinct possibility too, but because of what you have done to others and to God. Well, if that's you, and to a large extent it is true for every one of us, then this message is for you. It's not that we take comfort in the disciples' failure. You and I know that failure is not unique to those dysfunctional disciples. You and I know that far too often we are also dysfunctional disciples. You and I fall too. And the sins that those disciples committed aren't really very different from the sins that you and I commit and an on a regular basis. But in the disciples' failure, we see God's grace and God's mercy. If Jesus can show grace and mercy to them, then there's hope for us. You and I can hope that Jesus will also show grace and mercy to us. And if Jesus does not write them off, then you and I can also have hope that he will not write us off either. So in this passage from Luke 9, 46 to 56, we see three incidents presented in staccato fashion. Three more examples of the disciples' sin. In verses 46 to 48, we see the disciples' conceit with each other. And in verses 49 and 50, we see the disciples' factionalism with outsiders. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see the disciples' harshness with the Samaritans. And all three of these sins are manifestations of the disciples' pride. The disciples must learn to see each other and outsiders and enemies from a position of humility. Pride damages every human relationship. 
And pride also damages your relationship with God. Pride hinders you from enjoying intimacy with others and especially from enjoying intimacy with God. But humility, on the other hand, builds up relationship and fosters intimacy with God and others. But I wonder, how does your pride damage your relationships? How does your pride hinder you from enjoying intimacy with God? J.C. Ryle reminds us that of all creatures, none has so little right to be proud as man. And he adds, of all men, none ought to be so humble as the Christian. So then the question remains, how do you cultivate humility? How do you cultivate humility? Well, let's look at the disciples' pride. First of all, in verses 46 to 48, we see the disciples' conceit with each other. The inner circle of the disciples, Peter and John and James, as I mentioned, had, had just seen and heard who Jesus is. They had all heard Jesus say, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 9, 44. Then as verse 45 closes, the disciples fail again to understand what Jesus is talking about. Matthew includes the, Jesus' full statement. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples are greatly distressed. I get it. It is distressing. But they didn't understand. They didn't let it sink into their ears. They, they should have listened. They should have accepted what Jesus said. And what they didn't understand, they should have asked Jesus to explain. But they didn't because they were afraid to ask. But then in the very next sentence, we're told, verse 46, the very next sentence, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. This is astounding. If it wasn't so horrific, it would be comical. Jesus is about to set his face towards Jerusalem and towards his crucifixion. And all the disciples can think about is who is the greatest. Not only did they fail to understand what Jesus is saying about his cruci coming crucifixion, but they failed miserably. You and I fail miserably too. Their thinking was diametrically opposed to that of Jesus. You, you would be hard-pressed to find a wider chasm between the attitude of Jesus and that of the disciples, or like that. My arms aren't long enough to communicate the wideness of the chasm. They radically failed to understand, not only in relation to Jesus, but also in relation to themselves. Jesus was motivated by sacrificial service, and they were motivated by conceit, by a sense of, of superiority over each other. They were consumed by a sense of self-importance and self-love at each other's expense. And friends, self-importance and self-love are always at the expense of others. Clearly, they were not listening to Jesus as the Father had commanded. Clearly, Jesus' words had not yet sunk into their ears as Jesus had commanded. Now, this isn't going to be the only time they do this. Later on in, in Jesus' ministry, as they're approaching Jerusalem, just before the transfiguration, they're, they're, they're going to be arguing James and John, actually their, their mother, they get their mother in to try to argue for them who's going to get to sit in your right hand or your left hand in the kingdom of God. So even at, at the, almost the end of Jesus' ministry, they still don't get it. Each one thinks he is the best. They're like the, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, revealing their foolishness. 
when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And maybe you are like that too. I know far too often I am like that too. Maybe you are tempted to compare yourself with others. You look at others' abilities or their knowledge or their, their walk with God and you feel superior. You feel like you are better than them. And the problem is exacerbated when you see others being commended, when you see others in the spotlight and you feel jealous. You see others being blessed by something that you want or think that you deserve and you wonder, what about me? What about me? And so you build yourself up in your mind while simultaneously tearing down others in your mind. But it manifests itself in other ways as well. Being the first to the food line and the last to clean up. The desire to speak first or longest or loudest and being slow to listen to others. Seeking to serve in those ways that are going to get noticed and avoiding serving behind the scenes. Making sure others know what you're doing or how much you're giving. Or serving until someone else offends you or ignores you or otherwise steps on your delicate toes and you walk away. Being easily offended by slights from others or perceived slights from others. Now, I'm just not preaching this to you. I'm preaching this to me too. Being focused on your perceived needs and being blind to the needs of others. The list goes on and on, and it's all conceit. It's all sin rooted in the pride that thinks you are better than those around you. And we all do this all too often. We most often and easily display conceit, this species of pride among ourselves, among those closest to us, among our families, and, in, and at church. This, this kind of attitude does not build the church. It builds barriers. This kind of attitude doesn't advance the kingdom of God. It advances the kingdom of self. I think conceit is part of the reason why the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he talked to them about their, his coming crucifixion because they were thinking selfishly. They're worried about how Jesus, what Jesus was talking about would affect them. That they're motivated by, by their, and misled by their own presuppositions, that they were each looking for the kingdom now. They, they thought that, that Jesus was, was going to bring in the earthly kingdom and that they were going to rule with him in positions of honor. They were possibly also jealous because only Peter and John and James had been invited up the Mount of Transfiguration. Friends, if you, are, if you are jealous of others, you're never going to be aware of what is, what is going on around you or inside you. Your pride will blind you or cause you to gloss over your weaknesses. To the extent that that's you, and again, it's, it's all of us to a certain extent, you are like the apostles seeking an earthly kingdom with yourself in a position of honor. Now, Jesus would have been justified in sharply rebuking the disciples. But instead, he uses this as another teachable moment. Friends, conflict is an opportunity. We'll see this when we get to, verse, to verses 51 to 56. It's an opportunity to, to see what is going on inside of ourselves. And it's an opportunity to get, let God shine the light on our sinful attitudes and tendencies. And if you go into conflict seeking to, to point out the other person's flaws and, and where the other person went wrong, 
you're never going to see your own stuff. And again, that's conceit. Again, Jesus would have been justified in sharply rebuking the disciples, but instead, knowing what's in their hearts, he took a young child and put the child beside him. Now, when Jesus takes this young child and puts it beside him, he's, he's saying something here. He's putting this child in a position of honor. He's putting this child in a position of honor. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to interpret it in light of the, of the cultural context. Because I think in our culture, we have a tendency to, to almost idolize children. But in that culture, children were abased. They were, they were at the bottom of the pecking order, the bottom of the, the social ladder. They, they were considered weak and vulnerable and dependent. And so here, Jesus taking this child who would have been considered insignificant and placing him in a position of honor right next to him, Jesus is saying something, he's teaching the disciples something that they need to learn. This child did not have the status that the disciples assumed for themselves. But Jesus honored him. And then Jesus says to the disciples, verse 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the, him who sent me. For he who is least among you is also the one who is great. So Jesus is turning here, not just the, the social hierarchy, but also the disciples' attitudes upside down, or rather, upside right. Jesus is saying that to accept the child, a child in the name of Jesus, in his name, is to accept Jesus. And this child represents humility. Matthew includes the fuller statement in his parallel. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Daryl Bach is helpful here. He says, those coming into the kingdom are to humble themselves as children. An action, removing the desire for comparison as well, for greatness is found in humility. In Luke 18, 17, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. Humility. It, it takes humility to see your unrighteousness. It takes humility to see your need. It, it takes humility to see your depravity. You need to flee to Christ. And to continue to flee to Christ every day of your natural life. Children, we love having you in our church services. I'm speaking to the children in the gym as well. We, we pray earnestly that you will humbly receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You are an important part of our church family. We want to, you to become part of the family of God. We want you to humbly receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And we pray for you on a pretty much daily basis that you'd be born again. Again, this child represents the kind of humility that God requires. A, a child is not self-conscious. A child is not self-reliant. Again, humility is what God requires. Humility is what leads us to God. I like C.J. Mahaney's definition of humility from his book entitled Humility, True Greatness. He says, humility is honestly assessing yourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You see what he's saying there? He says, only when you see yourself in the light of who God is will you begin to understand who you are. Only Jesus is the greatest. But when you begin to get a glimpse of how great Jesus is, you'll begin to see how sinful you are. And you won't compare yourself with others. Instead, you will focus on worshiping Jesus. Now, most of you would have heard this, this illustration before, but, but when I was teaching physical education, I would, I would teach 
in, in, during athletics, I would teach, one of the things I would teach is long jump. And I taught, I taught from primary school, so from, from preschool to, to grade seven. And, and when, when I would, when, when these kids would jump, they would jump, you know, the younger ones, like preschool grade one, like a meter, maybe a meter and a half. And I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a good jumper. But compared to them, I am. So if I come along and I jump four meters, now just to give you, maybe you don't know how far kids can jump, but by grade seven, most of them could probably jump further than me. But if I compare myself to those little kids, I look pretty good. But the world record for the long jump is 8.95 meters when last I checked. Almost 30 feet. I'm not looking so good anymore. But the reality is whether it's one meter or four meters or nine meters, none of it compares to what God requires. If, if you look at the holiness that God requires, it would be like jumping from here to Australia. And even that doesn't do it justice. The, the differences between us and each other are negligible. But between, the difference between you and the weakest Christian is nothing compared to the difference between you and Christ. And likewise, it's true, it's the, the difference between you and the, 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 the most sanctified Christian is still nothing when you are compared to Jesus Christ and his perfection, you'll not begin to understand who you are until you begin to understand who Jesus is. Humility is true greatness. To accept a humble child then in the name of Jesus is to accept Jesus. To accept Jesus is to accept God, the one who sent Jesus. And so we should, we should honor those who are the most lowly and the most humble among us. And the, the implication is clearly that, that pride is akin to rejecting Jesus, which, which also means rejecting God. So then the path to greatness begins with humble faith and doesn't swerve from humble faith by God's grace. So again, pride blinds you to your weakness and magnifies the weaknesses of others. But humility is focused on your sin and on evidences of grace in others. Pride considers your opinion as the most important, but humility sees others as more important. Pride sees everyone else as a supporting actor in the story of your life. But humility sees yourself as a servant. Pride likes to hear itself talk, but humility wants to hear what others think. Pride seeks to advance its own interests, but humility looks on the interests of others. So the disciples yet do not understand what Jesus was going to do. And they do not understand that, that what Jesus was going to do is, is not just to, to overturn their own sinful attitude, but he would blow their sinful attitude to smithereens as he offers himself up on the cross. Brothers and sisters, the eternal God does not just take on human flesh and already infinite condescension, but he would humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. Humility comes through believing and following Jesus. So we've seen the disciples and their own, uh, their, their own pride and conceit with each other. Now let's look at the disciples' factionalism with outsiders, verses 49 and 50. The disciples aren't finished tumbling yet. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now Jesus has just told them to receive others, and now they're rejecting someone else's ministry. 
And this exorcist, remember, succeeds where the disciples had just failed. He had cast out demons while they couldn't cast out demons. Even though, again, Jesus had given them authority to do so. And I'll bet this chafed them. It's implied that, that, this, that this exorcist has faith that the official disciples don't. It seems that they thought that theirs was exclusive authority. And so they tried to stop him. Can't you just, just hear the note of pride in John's voice? Clearly, Peter wasn't the only impulsive disciple. Uh, again, they're motivated by pride. Notice that they do not say, he does not follow you, but rather, he does not follow with us. He isn't one of us. It isn't that, that he isn't with Jesus, but he, that he isn't with us. It's factionalism. It's dividing people along the lines that they think are important. And it's this kind of partisan spirit that Paul rebuked in the Corinthians. I'm of Paul. I am of Apollos. And in our day, it's common to see this sort of attitude when we look at other churches and other denominations. When people don't worship the same way we do or have the same doctrinal understanding that we do. Brothers and sisters, I think churches like ours are particularly prone to this sort of pride. We are careful to have precise doctrine. And that is not a bad thing, quite the opposite. However, we can, we can wear our doctrine like, like a badge of honor and look down our noses at those who have a different understanding. Don't forget that we do not have the market cornered on truth. Don't think like Job's counselors that, that we are the people and that wisdom will die with us. Job 12.2 We see a similar situation in Numbers 11 when at the instruction of the Lord, Moses gathers 70 men out of the elders of the people and then the Lord takes some of the spirit that was in Moses and puts it on them. And then Joshua discovers that, that there were two who were not among the 70 and that they were out prophesying in the camp. And so Moses says to, so Jacob, uh, Joshua rather says to Moses, stop them. But Moses replies in Numbers eleven twenty nine, are you jealous for my sake? He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Because Moses, who is, Again, one of the most humble people that has ever lived on the planet, again, nothing compared to the humility of Jesus, is not concerned with advancing his own kingdom or his own glory. He is, by God's grace, concerned with advancing God's kingdom and God's glory. If you see an, another church that is, is growing in depth or breadth, or, or being blessed financially, or, or being effective in some particular ministry, you could be tempted to say, but they believe X or Y or Z. But they do this wrong or that wrong or, or their church is such and such. It's a partisan spirit and it's pride. It's pride. And again, the solution is humility. Look to God's word to understand God and to understand yourself. You who profess to appreciate the sovereignty of God, how did you come to that understanding? Was it by your own will or, or by your own wit? No. It was revealed to you by the God whose sovereignty you avow. And it's the same for every doctrinal truth that you hold dear. You didn't figure it out by yourself. God revealed it to you through his word, empowered by his spirit. You can take zero credit for yourself. It is all the gift of God. Now, I am not saying, and, and please listen carefully, I'm not suggesting for a second that doctrine or practice is not important. 
And I'm not talking about those who deny the fundamental tenets of the faith. I'm only saying that God has worked through, throughout, through flawed people and flawed, with flawed understandings all throughout church history. The disciples are exhibit A of that fact. Again from J.C. Ryle, he warns thousands in every period in church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. Again, I'm saying here that there is no room for pride. A big head will not fit through the gates of heaven. Instead, be humble. Be humble about your beliefs and be humble about those who hold them with you. And so do not identify yourself primarily with human beings. You don't be like those, those Corinthians. I'm of, of, I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulos. We might say, I'm of, of John Owen or, or John Calvin or John Piper or John MacArthur and God forbid, John Tucker. Be of Christ and not in the way that the, that the Corinthians were saying it. As though, we're all about Christ. Oh, it's with humble faith. Humble faith. Realizing that every good thing and every true thing that you believe has been given to you by the gift of the sovereign God. Identify with Christ and that will develop in you a wideness in your heart. Strive by God's grace for humble orthodoxy. Jesus says to John and to us in verse 50, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Anyone who fights evil in the name of Jesus is on your side. Anyone who fights evil in the name of Jesus is on your side. On that last day, when we are all standing before Christ, we will marvel at what, what God has done through and through whom, especially what God has done through ourselves. At the best of times, God is always drawing a straight line with a crooked stick. And you and I are crooked sticks indeed. Again, the problem comes from pride and the solution is humility. When you know your own shortcomings, and know that it's a miracle that God can do anything in or through you, you'll be quick to allow that God can work in and through those whose thinking is not exactly like yours. If God is able to work through you or me, is he able to work through any true believer? Friends, God is doing infinitely more than you can even think or imagine, even through those who, whose beliefs are less orthodox. Love believes the best, and so does humility. Humility is not suspicious of the actions or motives of others. Humility is more suspicious of your own actions and motives. Some would go so far as to conclude that those who, with a different doctoral position are not even Christians. Someone once asked George Whitfield, a Calvinist, whether he would see or we would see John Wesley, an Arminian, in heaven. And Whitfield said, no. We won't see Wesley because he's going to be so close to the throne and we're going to be so far back from the throne that we won't even be able to see him. Friends, that's humility. That's a right understanding of, of who God is and how God works. Again, don't get me wrong. I am 100% convinced that God's saving work is accurately communicated in the five points of Calvinism, not in the five points of Arminianism. However, you are not saved by your doctrinal position, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. 
Friends, you will find that there will be many Calvinists in hell and many Arminians in heaven. We can get so focused on our individual church or our individual denomination or others of our stripe that we look down our noses again at those who have a different point of view. I remember many years ago at a Christian concert, the the lead singer had everyone shout out the name of their church. And of course, the, it led to everyone yelled out their church name, and it was just, just an, an, an indistinct noise. But then he asked the crowd, who is your Savior? And everyone shouted out in unison, Jesus Christ, with one voice. His message is clear. We may go to different churches with different doctrinal understandings, but all Christians belong to the same Savior. And when he returns... We will all discover areas where we were wrong. However, and immeasurably more importantly, we will all have a single-minded focus on Jesus Christ. But until that time, let us strive for unity with others who truly believe the gospel, even if we don't agree on everything. Al Mohler, I think, coined the phrase theological triage. And if, if, if you understand anything about, about medical care, they, they use triage to, to assess casualties. And so if there's a, a situation when, when people come, when you go to the emergency room, they're, they're doing triage, which means they, they're, they're trying to de- determine how critical your need is. And, and so if you find yourself going in there with, with a broken leg, if you've ever gone into the, the emergency room in Kelowna with a broken leg, you, you know that you're often in for a long wait because it's, it's considered tertiary. It's, it's not life-threatening. But if you go in there with, with something that is, is more serious, like say, for example, a, a sucking chest wound, okay, that's going to get you seen a lot more quickly. That would still be in the, in the secondary category. We've become kind of frequent flyers in the hospital, and, and usually it's Liam, but, but this time it was Owen. Owen had to go to the hospital this, this week with, thankfully, a, a tertiary issue. But then there's a, a, when, when Jane and Owen were, were next to, to go in, a, a woman came in who was having a stroke. That's primary. So she was immediately ushered in to get the help that she needed, and that's understandable. That's triage, primary, secondary, and tertiary. And so Al Mohler applies this to, to theology. He's, he mentioned these, the primary issues are, are, are those issues that, that, to a large extent, determine whether someone is a Christian or not. These are the, the fundamentals of the faith. Now, again, there's, there's maybe a little bit of, of room on this, and it's, it's, it's true that, that others can have a, a less orthodox view of some of these things and, and still be saved. We'll leave that in, in, in God's court. But here, I would, we would include things like the inspiration of God's word. The, the deity exclusivity of Christ. The, the Trinity. Again, we would define these things as, as being fundamental to the faith. But the secondary issues, things as like beliefs of baptism and the, the spiritual gifts and so on, these are not the dividing line for Christianity, but they would be the dividing line for church membership. That in order to become a member of this church, you have to believe our, our statement of faith. And that statement of faith includes... Mostly primary things, but also some secondary things, like as I said, our view on baptism. But then the, the tertiary issues are, are those things which, which you can be free to discru- discuss with great gusto in the context of, of local church fellowship. So things like worship style and eschatology. These are, are they're, they're still important issues, but they're, they're things that... that that within the context of, of one local church, we can, we can agree to disagree on. Now, some people might draw the line at different places, and, and, and that's fine, but, but for others, everything is primary. And they practice second-degree separation, so separating from those who, who don't separate from others that they disagree with. And what happens is these these people divide and divide and divide and divide until they find themselves in a room all by themselves. 
Cooperation for the sake of the gospel reveals the glory of the gospel. So then thinking again of theological triage, when it comes to actually working together for the gospel, we draw the line more closely. Only working with churches and individuals who hold fast to what we believe are primary issues. And I believe that the inerrancy and authority of God's word is a good litmus test for this. this. Because if, if you deny the inerrancy and authority of God's word, then everything and anything is up for grabs. That, that's why we are, we're eager to have a close relationship with other churches in the city who, who view the, God, the word of God in the same way we do. That's why we do what we do, trying to, to, to help Bethel Presbyterian. Grace Baptist and Grace Reformed and, and Hope Bible Church. That's why we, we pray for them. That's why we, we, we try to, to work with them as much as we can. And even though there would be some different doctrinal or methodological distinctives, we know that we are anchored on the same principles. But when it comes to formal partnership, however, we draw the line more closely again. And that, that's why we have concerns with what's taking place in many fellowship Baptist churches, that the fellowship, many fellowship Baptist churches in our own region have rejected the, the, the statements of faith of the fellowship of, of, the fellowship of uh, BC and Yukon and the fellowship in the country. That's why we have joined FIRE, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, because we agree on, on all of the primary issues and all of the secondary issues. And we have hearty, but not heated, discussion on the tertiary issues. Because we're, we're going in the same direction. We believe the same things. And we're, we're part of FIRE because, because we appreciate its distinctives of baptism and a high view of God and His sovereignty and His word. But listen carefully. That does not mean that we do not believe that he is working through other groups. On the contrary, we praise God for what he is doing in other groups. We pray for other groups and, and churches and Christians and denominations and associations. And we understand again and believe wholeheartedly that Christ is working even in and through churches who do not have as high a view of God or his word as we do. Humility is the cure for factionalism. And this failure of the disciples marks the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. With verse 51 that we're going to start looking at next week, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and towards his crucifixion. Now the distance between where he is now geographically and Jerusalem is actually very short. But Jesus is going to take a full year to get there, almost a year to get there. And I think from what we've looked at today and, and last week, you can see why that the disciples have a great deal to learn. Again, the road to Jerusalem is going to begin as the ministry in Galilee ended with continued failure on the part of the disciples. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing, as we look at, at the disciples' harshness with the Samaritans in verses 51 to 56. The disciples were conceited with each other and divisive with outsiders. The disciples clearly don't get it. They, they know that Jesus is the Christ. They know that he is the son of God, but they do not understand what he came to do. The disciples don't yet understand Jesus' mission, and so they don't understand their mission. They don't understand what Jesus has said about his crucifixion. They were so full of pride that they couldn't see each other or outsiders, which we'll see next week, enemies, accurately. The disciples needed to do what God the Father had told them on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. Luke 9.35. They needed to do what Jesus had told them to do in verse 9.44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The disciples need to preach the gospel to themselves. And so do we. So do we. The only way anyone beats pride is through the gospel. The only way anyone grows in true humility or or ever even has true humility is through the gospel. 
Now the irony is that the, the same mission that the apostles did not yet understand because of their pride would provide them the victory over pride. Jesus, in his ultimate humility, would die for their pride and for ours. Paraphrasing Philippians 2, 5 and following. Seeking to have the mind of Christ, who, though equal with God, served others by taking on human flesh and obeying God even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, Christ is exalted to the highest height. He humbled himself to the lowest of lows, being submissive even to death on a cross. And death held him for three days, but he had victory over death. And victory over sin. And victory over hell. And his victory is our victory. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we'll all be singing in a couple of months, glory in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Friends, that is the road to humility. Following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, believing the gospel and preaching the gospel to yourself daily. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your humility. Lord Jesus, though you are the eternal Son of God and of love for your, for your Father and love for your Bride, you took on human flesh, fulfilling the law that we have never kept, even in our greatest moments. For in our greatest moments, we have been nothing but worthless servants. But Lord Jesus, you have filled up what is lacking in us through your perfect righteousness, which is credited to our account, your righteousness, which is imputed to us through the gospel. And Lord Jesus, as you died the death that should have been ours, as our sin was imputed to you. The Father poured out his wrath on you for our sin. Lord Jesus, as you humbled yourself even into the grave, Lord, we see humility. And Lord, we also see your glory, for we know that death could not hold you. Lord, that three days later you were raised from the grave and that you have ascended to the Father's right hand. So Lord Jesus, help us to see ourselves in light of your glory and your humility and help us, Lord, to follow in your footsteps in humble faith that you might be glorified in us. We ask this again for your glory and for the building of your church. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.